So I've been engaging with Christopher McDonald for quite some time uh, on Instagram or email, whatever it may be. Now, once everything started unfolding with the murder of George Floyd, it took me a while to process what I could possibly do to take action. And I just really was getting the vibe from watching so many different things that there was a lot of what we've seen in the past, which is public statements, blanket statements, just just something to kind of quell or satiate what was happening. And it's just not enough. And I'm not saying what I'm doing is incredibly grand, but I just wanted to try and look at what I have to offer the world, what my profession is, what I believe I do well, and apply that accordingly. So I decided to put a post on LinkedIn and I asked 10 black Americans to come on and interview with me and talk about experiences that we, who are not black or African American, tell me about those experiences that you go through that we would have no idea what it's like. Tell me about your everyday lives and and the things that you have to avoid or the things that you have to do or the things that you have to endure so that we can have a better understanding, have empathy, develop our learning of systemic racism, and act accordingly. It's up to us, not them, it's up to us to take that information and take it further. Now, obviously, there's been a massive movement and now it is spanning the globe, but I reached out to Chris and he agreed to come on and I could not believe some of the things he told me and as you listen you will see how many different types of racism he essentially endured the different mechanisms it can be carried out in is just unthinkable to me now luckily Chris is hilarious. Uh, He's lighthearted, he's funny, but he's also driven. So don't take the fact that he's able to look at some of these situations and make light of them as a substitute for his ferocious effort behind trying to make this something that continues to thrive. And by this, I mean a movement to uncover what we all know to exist. A movement that implicates the value and the sanctity of black lives and not ignoring them. This episode is brought to you by Tippy Toes Dance. These two sisters, the CEO and COO, Sarah Noose and Megan Riley, are on a mission to just make sure your kids blow off some steam, have fun, learn how to dance, and then just enjoy themselves. Uh, Now, they're a 30-plus franchise company that had endured the ramifications of the pandemic, but they pivoted and they got virtual dance classes going on. So people like Chris, people like me, we can put this on and just watch our children enjoy themselves and I could actually 
relax my mind and not worry about what they're doing because I know they're doing something constructive. So check them out at tippytoesdance.com. These are just two amazing women who will bring you a superior product. Check it out. Enjoy the episode. And please don't forget, if you get anything out of this, please pass it on. Please give it a rating and review because we've just had a lot of growth in June and I want to keep that momentum going. The information is great. It's important. It's relevant. And this one is historical. Take care. Uh, when it comes to this country's experience, obviously this is a global problem, but I'm speaking uh, to this country and of course my experience. And I'm citing these three examples because there are different levels. And you know, when people think of racism, and this is something that I'm discovering now that we're in this open dialogue with people who aren't necessarily uh, people who experience racism. And I'm discovering that there are a lot of things uh, that are like arithmetic and breathing for me that I know to be true that aren't for, I'll speak specifically for certain uh, white folks who just didn't realize this stuff happens. So I'll start with the light one, uh, and that's code switching. For viewers who don't know, that's uh, when you change up the way you present yourself when you're around certain different people, of course. Uh, and it tends uh, to be if you're around white people, like you said about, mentioned about your friend, uh, they were a blazer or change the way they talk or whatever. So I tend to uh, code switch a lot. And it's something I do, not even just about, uh, you know, when it comes to a racial perspective, it's just in general what I do. But I found that when I was growing up, I did it more than I needed to. And I played the game just to get in the door in certain places to get a job or to do whatever. I would speak in a different dialect. Um, for sure, when I'm around my black friends, I'm completely a different person than most people see. It's just different. I say different things. I talk a different way. Uh, but... Uh, I, I feel the need to uh, have this aura of professionalism. Now, the big misconception of code switching, though, and this is a problem that I think a lot of people need to get beyond, and this is a bit of racism that I've dealt with this. I've been told many times in the past that I talk like a white person. And I always stop and say, well, why do I talk like a white person? Especially when it comes from a white person who says it. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, and they, they'll literally say, well, you're articulate and uh, you use proper English. And then I think, wow, so you're saying that in order to talk black, I have to use incorrect grammar and talk a certain way. So you're saying that black people just can't talk in grammatical you know, sentences. And, and it trips people up because that's exactly what they're saying, but they don't even realize that they're saying it. So that's something that I hear all the time. And, and, yeah. and it's one of those things that I, I feel that I'm a victim of my own code switching, right? Yeah. Uh, it's things that I do. Uh, Let me to, interject really quick. And I, and I will interject a couple of times. I'd love to peel oh, the onion oh. a little bit. So it's, it's interesting because you, you mentioned earlier that I did it to, to get my foot in the door a couple of places. I, I believe code switching is, is an experience a lot of us go through. I mean, clearly, if I'm going on a job interview, like Chris Rock always says it, he's like, when you go on your first date, they're meeting your representative. And I'm like, exactly, right? <laughs> when I'm going on a job interview, or if I'm trying to get someone on a podcast or anything like that, like there's, it's, it's the best rich possible or tailoring it to them. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that you've just mentioned that it makes, they're insinuating you're uneducated. And I, I do believe it to be the same. So then mm -hmm. how do you, how do you make amends with that if, if you're saying, I can't just be who I am? 
Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I struggled with for a while. Uh, but in, as it turns out, so the older I got, and, and even uh, when I went to college, I, I went to college for broadcast journalism. And one of the very first classes they teach you in a program that you have to take is voice and articulation, because if you're going to be a journalist, especially for broadcast, uh, you're going to have to lose any accent you have. You're going to have to uh, lose the slang and the talk properly. And you're going to have to talk like, like you come from nowhere. Right. Uh, so that actually kind of stuck with me. Um, so as time went on, I didn't have to pander to code switching as much. So when I made a conscious effort to stop code switching, because I didn't feel that it was necessary, uh, I had already found uh, my voice had already changed. You know what I mean? So then the problem became because I'd gotten into this frame of talking professionally, uh, then I just had to deal with the people, the naysayers who felt the need to, to think that I spoke white because I spoke in correct English. So what I do and what, uh, how I process it, I just call it out. I never let it slide. Of course. I mean, I just won't let it slide. And, and, you know, and I'll be frank, uh, there are black people who would say that also. And I would call them on that too and say, so are you saying that we have to talk a certain way in bad English to talk bad, listen to what you're saying and don't perpetuate that stereotype because you're only making it worse for everybody. Right. So, um, it's just something that's, uh, it's something that I, I push for and everyone has a right to talk the way they talk, but no one should ever categorize anyone for the way they talk and call it a white speech if you speak in good grammar, because that's just problematic for everybody involved. So I just kind of call it as I see it. So that's, that's one example of racism that I deal with. And it's something that most people who don't deal with racism, they don't see as racism because they don't experience it, right? So that's a minor level. Uh, little things I had to do when I lived in Boston, I, uh, I was broke in college and when I, I lived in Boston. I wouldn't even take the T, which is the subway there. It's overground and underground. And it was 75 cents just to take it at the time I was there. And that's how broke I was. I would save those 75 cents. And Boston's a walkable small city and you can walk the entire city. But a lot of times I ended up finding myself walking the city at night um, and walking long distances. And Boston was cold. And I can't tell you how many colds that I got that I didn't have to get because I wouldn't wear a beanie or a hood on my head. Because walking down the street in Boston as a black man, I can't even tell you enough of the crap I had to deal with. Some stories I won't even go into because there are stories I've never told that I had to deal with, with the cops getting stopped for no reason and harassed. But then there were simple things where, that I would do because I, I had a friend who got sprayed in the face with mace because he was just walking. Because <laughs> this woman, this white woman thought he was going to rob him and he was just walking by. So that freaks me out. So what I would do is and to this day, I carried it even into when I moved to Los Angeles. I sometimes, and I'm a terrible whistler, but I will whistle as I walk to come across as non-threatening. I will make sure these days, if I have a phone, to light it up and to make it look like I'm not paying attention to who I'm walking to. I'm paying attention to my phone. You're actually inducing stress on yourself to reduce stress on someone else. Yes, like, yes. So how does that, like, how do you cope with that so to speak it's messed up and i get mad about it a lot uh i get really upset about it especially when it becomes an inconvenience for me um i would i would literally cross the street sometimes to just avoid it literally i, I would always I, I i call it the zigzag the zigzag walk to my friends in boston uh especially the ones who could relate i would literally zigzag to get home i would walk three miles to get home and i'd be crossing the street to avoid anybody who may deem me as threatening and which happened a lot in that city. It was just unbelievable. 
because it was at night and I was this foreboding character with a hood or a beanie, which I had to stop wearing. Uh, so it, it was just it was just disappointing. So when I moved out here, I, I adopted that habit also, but it's not that much of a walkable city. And I realized there was a little bit less fear and stereotypes out here in Los Angeles, uh, although it still exists. So I, I had, I was able to stop doing it, but I also made a, a choice that I'm going to stop doing it because why should I go out of my way to worry about what other people think, which is a very, 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 um, uh, people don't talk about it enough, the embarrassment of racism. I'm hearing it in the dialogue that people are having now, but the embarrassment of being a victim of race. I, and now I digress, but I went to a party with a group of friends. It just so happened that uh, uh, they were all white and we were going to, we went to see this show and then we were going to this, uh, this bar and it was over in, in Agora Hills, which is in, it's the most non-urban area in Los Angeles County. Uh, so uh, we went to this bar and we were all kind of dressed the same. We all had on hooded sweatshirts, but nice hooded sweatshirts. None of us had our hoods on, but we all had them on. Uh, and, and the hoods were back. And it was the style at the time. And I was the last person walking in. We were on a party bus. I walked out of the party bus and they all walked in. And when I went to walk in, the bouncer stopped me and said, no hoodies allowed. And I was just like, wait, what? He said, no hoodies allowed. And I thought about it. I said, wait a minute, my friends are wearing it, but I didn't make a stink because you don't want to be that guy, right? So I was just like, okay. He's, and I said, oh, uh, and then one of my friends came out. I was like, what's going on? I was like, I can't come in because of this hoodie. He was like, what? What the fuck, man? I'm wearing a hoodie. And I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, I'm just going to go on the bus. I have a t-shirt on under this. I'll change it. And he's like, nah, man, he made a big stink. He's like, that's ridiculous, man. That's racist, blah, blah. Here I am embarrassed about it. And I said, no, 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 no. I'll just go on the bus. I'll, I'll leave my hoodie in there and I have a t-shirt. It's fine. Uh, but we ended up leaving anyways. And I remember I was so mad at myself on the bus ride home thinking, why was I protecting that bouncer's feelings, right? Why was I protecting anyone's feelings? And, and I made it a point after that incident, because it had happened many times in the past, to never, to never protect anyone's feelings when it comes to it. You, you positioned it as not wanting to hurt his feelings, but he's kind of in a position of authority, which I think this relates to um, cause someone who has positional authority, like even a fucking bouncer is able to give you a go or no go. Mm -hmm. And, and just like the last interview, my person's like, it was easier to comply. It was, yeah. he said it was always easier to comply. And I was yeah. just like, that's yeah. awful. And to, and to elaborate on that. Uh, and when I talk about the bouncer's feelings, it was, I mean, when I say I didn't want to hurt his feelings, I didn't want to ruffle his feathers and cause problems for everybody. Like, I didn't really care about his personal feelings. I mean, the guy was doing a racist act. That pissed me off. But I didn't want to cause problems for my friends. I didn't want to cause problems for myself. I didn't want the night to be ruined. But he ruined that night when he made that dis discriminatory comment and act. So the night was already ruined. But here I was. And this is something that people don't talk about much. But I'm hearing about it more and more. I realize it. But, you know, uh, but I hear this from people who are just like, you know, white people in particular, like, wow, I didn't even realize that on a small level. I'm like, yeah, because people when they hear racism, they just think, oh, it's this word and this expletive and this and that. It's much more than that. It's there are so many levels to it, so many levels. And, uh, and that's one thing that I'm glad people are talking about and understanding. Now, uh, so the third story uh, is probably the, the most racist thing I've ever had happen to me. I can look back and laugh at it now, 
uh, it was crazy. Uh, and I say laugh at it because to me, racism in this day and age in the most blunt form is the most ridiculous thing in the world. You're showing your ass, you're looking stupid, uh, and you're making yourself sound like the most uneducated person in the world. So it blows my mind that people have it in their heart to put that out. Yeah. And, you know, and one thing I, I forgot to mention before I go into the overtly racist uh, experience that I had, which I had many, but I'll cite one really big one. But one thing I wanted to mention back about the hoodie thing and what that did, and, and, and it almost, racism is a bit of trauma. They're like notches that happen every time that happens to you and it causes you to look at life in a different way and kind of close yourself off in a sense. And when that happened, that was a very, that was a defining moment for me because, and I swear to God, and I don't even feel bad saying this because I've since talked about it with some of my friends and those friends in particular, it changed who I was around in group sense. So after that hoodie moment, I decided, I went on a hike with a friend and I told her, I was just like, I just been in this weird place lately. Since I've moved to LA, because of the industry I'm in and the circle of people that I've come to be around, I, I found that it, uh, I get caught up in, in, in groups of white folks a lot, right? Whereas when I was in college and high school and anytime before that, I would be amongst other black people or a mix. I've always been amongst mix. I grew up an army brat, so it was always a mix of friends. So I decided after that hoodie incident, I, you know, I stood out as the lone wolf walking in there with the hoodie and I told myself, I, and I swear to God, this is the rule I gave myself. I will never be in a setting of 10 or more white people where I'm the only black person. And to me, that's a, that's a traumatic reaction to racism. The fact that you put up that, you know, uh, you actually constitute that and say, this is how it's going to be. And, and to be honest, uh, and I'm sure if any of my friends end up seeing this out of that group, they're going to be like, wow, that makes so much sense. Because I stopped going to parties in that group setting. Anything where I was going to be the lone wolf in the room, I was just like, yeah, that's not happening. Even if it was at someone's house, like, nope, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the token black person. And that changed everything. But to me, that's, that's trauma. Uh, so yeah, so the uh, overtly uh, racial, racist experience I uh, had was, um, I was a freshman in high school. Uh, again, I grew up an army brat. And uh, during this period, I was living in uh, Kentucky, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, I played on the soccer team, and um, I was uh, uh, a halfback. I played left halfback. And on the team, just for reference, uh, there were four, four black people on the team. Uh, there was Davey Wright, who was a senior at that moment, and he had been on the team uh, since freshman year. Um, there was my brother, Gavin, um, who was a junior at the time, and he had been on only two years. And Oscar Dominique, and me and Oscar and I were both uh, freshmen in high school. And we also uh, were the few people, it was like just four of us, I believe, who played um, high school soccer when we were in, still in middle school. Um, but this was our ninth grade year. And this year, uh, at least for me, uh, we were playing against Marshall County in Kentucky. And after practice leading up to that game, uh, Davey, Oscar, my brother Gavin and I got pulled aside by the uh, two coaches. They said, hey, you guys stick around. And we're like, what's that about? And Davey, I, I remember just seeing that he just kind of had like a look that he knew what was about to happen since he was a senior and he'd been on the team for several years. And um, basically they sat us down and said, we're playing Marshall County in Marshall County coming up this weekend. And we're like, yeah, we know. Um, and Davey knows this because he experienced this many years ago. 
Uh, Marshall County is very a very notorious racist area. I don't know how it is now, but at the time, and I was just like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, so it's up to you guys. We recommend that you sit this one out. Um, but we just want to give you guys a heads up. It's up to you guys. And Davey was like, yeah, I've never experienced that again. I'm not going. Uh, my friend Oscar, who was a freshman with me, was like, he just heard that. He said, nope, not going. Forget about it. My brother Gavin and I were like, man, forget that. We're going. We're not going to let some you know, racist people scare us away. Forget that. You know what I mean? Because I was actually angry about that. I'm not sitting this game out. The team needs me. So we went and I, oh man, I couldn't believe it. Um, so the team, the players were extra aggressive uh, with me and my brother. They kept knocking me down, slide tackling me in the most illegal way. Um, uh, they weren't getting called for it. Uh, and they would call me the N-word when I would hit the ground. And, and that was that was probably uh, the nicest thing I heard uh, that entire time. So it escalated because you had moms and their kids, siblings of the uh, of the um, soccer players at Marshall County, screaming expletives at me. If I did a good move, they're like, "Oh, he did a good move because he thought that ball was a watermelon." And I was hearing terms that I hadn't heard prior to that game. Like, I think the first time I heard porch, excuse me, <clears throat> the first time I heard porch monkey was at that game. I was like, porch, what the hell is a porch monkey? And I was just hearing all these terms. I was like, is that making this up? And I remember subsequently afterwards finding out that these terms were actually real and were in the racist vernacular. But I remember thinking like, oh my God, what is happening? And it tripped me out that the moms and siblings were participating. It's one thing, the players, and there were a couple of players, I remember to be fair, who were, I could see they were embarrassed. One guy helped me up and said, I'm sorry. But moms and siblings in the stands saying the worst racist terms, call me the N-word, call me every porch monkey, everything you could think of, right? Kicking a watermelon, what the hell, man? So um, I remember thinking like, oh man, we can't win this game because <laughs> they were yelling threats. Like, if you win this game, we're going to lynch you, stuff like that, right? And I was like... And we're talking, we're talking high school, yeah, irrelevant, doesn't yeah, mean was, shit, soccer yeah. game. Exactly. doesn't mean anything. And I remember thinking, damn, if we win this game, are we going to, is our bus going to get pulled over down the street in the wooded area? Like, with, like, Hey, we just want the, you know, the black guys, you know what I mean? Obviously another word. Um, I had this vision of things happening. We lost the game anyway, but I remember I was so angry on the whole bus ride home. My teammates, my white teammates were embarrassed and didn't, couldn't even say anything to me. They were just, they just kept quiet. My brother and I sat in the back, and we just didn't want anyone talking to us. And I just remember I, I put on uh, the, my windbreaker hoodie and just literally put on my headphones and my Walkman dating myself. I didn't want anyone talking to me. Uh, it was crazy. So that by far stood out uh, to me is probably the most overtly because it was a collection of people and who they were, moms and kids. But I've had many other overt experiences after that, but that one stands. What about your teammates? Um, was there any expectation and does it relate to how it is today when there is the ever present like bystander effect and someone who does not, who, who wants to lead by example, who wants to address a bias, who wants to address a remark and doesn't, does, do you see any parallels between that and how you felt to what you see today? Yeah, 100%. Back then everyone, didn't know how to react to it. They, they just kind of left it alone. It was, it was basically an elephant in the room and no one talked about. Um, I, I, I honestly can't remember any conversation I had with any of my teammates 
um, afterwards. You know what I mean? They just kind of turned a blind eye. It wasn't their problem, and they were embarrassed of that problem. There's that bit of guilt that they saw, uh, you know, their race doing that to another race, and it's just like, okay, I don't do that. I know I don't do that, so I'm going to step away from it. And as we know, in the dialogue that's happening now, that doesn't help anything. And I've been saying that for years. I've been a champion for years of having the conversation, especially with your kids. This is a generational problem. And not just racism. I always say that if you're apathetic about showing the differences of other people to your kids and apathetic about showing them that the world is an ugly place when it comes to race, then someone else is going to get to them. Uh, in many cases, thankfully, it's the right people, but it may be the wrong people. So get ahead of that. Talk to your children. Adults, acknowledge these differences. Acknowledge, acknowledge this happens to other people. Because a lot of things that I'm finding out, too, is people coming out and saying, like, oh, wow, I, I, just, I actually did turn a blind eye to it. Or other people who are like, I turned a blind eye, blind eye so much, I didn't even know this was happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like, this stuff, it's real. It's real. And I'm glad people are talking about it. I'm glad uh, there's an open dialogue. I'm overwhelmed with emotion that globally, you got folks in friggin' Berlin. And I was telling someone the other day, the fact that they're marching about this in Norway, which to me is, and I, I, I don't mean this as an insult, I don't want to be funny, but that's like the whitest country in the world. <laughs> so when you got folks marching about Black Lives Matter in Norway, that's some change right there. What are some actions or things that people could consider in order to like literally just make a quarter turn in the right direction? Because if mm -hmm. everyone does that, then I think things will really change. Oh yeah, I think a big thing is, and I always hate to point out media and entertainment, but look, we, uh, since the 1950s, uh, mass media influences uh, the world we live in. I mean, you look at uh, teenagers uh, uh, during the Beatles invasion and you being interviewed about the Beatles coming and they're like, well, you know, gee, well, that's, it's just swell. I can't wait to see this. They talk like that because they saw that and uh, on Leave it to Beaver and Ozzy and Harriet, you look at, you know, your average black guy in the seventies, they're like, man, come on, man, job turkey, this, blah, blah, blah. It sounds like a joke, but they talk like that because they saw that in movies and black exploitation. That influences the cultural zeitgeist, right? So you have a whole history of mass media that still to this day does a really piss poor job of representing uh, Hispanics, Asians, Blacks, uh, East Indians. I mean, the list goes on, uh, you know, Middle Easterns. They still do a piss poor job. If we're not terrorists, if we're not in crime, if we're not so-and-so, we're just a bunch of folks who are just the side friend. You know, they're filling that quota. Let's cast someone who's just that side friend. But what happens here is we're grossly misrepresented as people of color, grossly misrepresented. So you have a country full of mostly white people still, that's still the majority, who have these preconceived notions of who we are. We're either the criminals or we're either just the side friend, but we're not a person of importance. And we don't have romantic roles. And even when we do have romantic roles, I can log this over and over again. You don't see people of color kissing on camera. So we're not even seen as romantic a lot of times. So it creates this big cultural zeitgeist issue. So when you're attacking racism, you already have these preconceived notions in these people's heads. They can't get around that mental block. So that needs to be reformatted. Entertainment, it sounds trivial, but it's not. Because people, everyone watches entertainment. That's a big thing. That and then the, the other thing is education. They need to teach education, not just from a Western standpoint. Think about your history class when we were growing up. We went back to Roman history, we went back to European history, and then we come to the United States and it's all about manifest destiny. 
taking this country because it's our destiny to take this country. He's like, no, let's call it like it is. That was the slaughter of the natives. <laughs> that was no manifest destiny. But that's how we're taught. And the only thing they teach about Africa is Egypt. They don't teach about sub-Saharan Africa in your history class. You got to go out of your way to learn that stuff. So that's a big issue too. I mean, these are all residual effects that cause problems within the cultural zeitgeist. So those are two things that, that need to be attacked. So therefore, when you have these conversations with your children and the other things are restructured, then we all go in knowing that everybody has their differences, but we're all human. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate it, review it, subscribe it, whatever makes you feel comfortable. If you got anything out of it, definitely, definitely share it with others. And thank you so much for your support. We'll talk to you next week.